Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. You ever feel like a chapter of your life is like coming to a close and a new chapter is being written? Yeah. This is that moment. I'm not throwing away my shot. (laughs) Rest is still unwritten. Yeah, it's very that. Hi, I'm Lizzie. And any cold, wet thing, I just... And hi, I'm Sam. Bella, look, it's a worm. (laughs) (laughs) And our podcast is called Subtextual, where we take a movie that you love, hate, or in this case, love to hate, and point out all of the gay subtext, (laughs) or whatever we can find (laughs) in this thing. Oh my god, Sam, we have been... We have a lot. We have a lot to do today. It almost feels like this entire episode could go without saying, just because Lizzie and I's friendship is like built on a foundation of discussing this <laughs> film. I don't think there's anything you can say. I hope there is. I hope there's something I'll learn. But I don't know if we could say anything that we haven't said before. This is like built into the the canon of our friendship. No, everything we're about to say has been discussed at nauseum. This is just like formalizing it and typing out into a Word document, frankly, and like spitting it all out for you. Like, but before we start talking about sparkly vampires, <laughs> just want to say thank you so much to our patrons. Um, if you haven't gotten a chance to check out our Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. We've got a lot of lovely perks. We've got video episodes. You can vote on upcoming episodes. Plus, we're just like all sorts of fun gay stuff happening over there that you can support. So if that is something you're interested in, come find us. Or you could give us a follow on Instagram, TikTok, Tumblr, Twitter. Your support and pressing play on this episode is frankly amazing. Yeah, if you want to hear Lizzie discuss the gender swap version of Twilight (laughs) or the Midnight Sun, which is Twilight from Edward's perspective, you could make us do that over on Patreon if you're so keen. I mean, if you must. (laughs) We've read them all anyway, so what are we going to do with that knowledge? If not talk about it on this podcast, then what else? So why are we talking about this movie today? Obviously, we're here to examine the inherent connection between the hidden desires of heteronormative <laughs> society and the link to intergenerational trauma. Shut the I, fuck up. No, we're, <laughs> we're here to talk about this movie because this is our podcast, not yours. <laughs> this is our podcast and you could pry it from our cold, dead <laughs> vampire hands. Our sparkly fingertips. <laughs> also, Kristen Stewart is a big fat lesbian and we love, love her. Every second of every movie she's ever been in, we will support and we will laugh and we will love. This is such a renaissance for us where our first year of this podcast was just every Kristen Stewart film in a row. <laughs> yeah. And we're bringing her back because it's been a while since we talked about Case Stew. Mm-hmm. So Sam, what's like your relationship with Twilight? Did you read the books? Did you like the movies? What's the vibe? <sighs> Oh my God, this is taking me back in time. I was in the sixth grade. I was an advanced reader, meaning I was checking out books from the library just to take the quizzes. You know, I was speed reading those books. (laughs) Oh my God. Taking the quizzes, getting those points, getting free Little Caesars pizza or whatever it is that they gave (laughs) you. And I remember so vividly that this guy, his name was Nico. Mm -hmm. I remember him so vividly. Oh my God. He was gay, which I learned later. His name was Nico. I'm so sorry. He walked into my English class so fucking cunt with a little book at his side. It was a black book Mm -hmm. with white hands and an apple at the front. I had never seen it before. He walked in so cunt, so slay, sat down, flipped through the pages like fucking Madonna. That could have been Beyonce right there. I remember looking at him being so jealous and I ran at the bell 
I ran to the library and asked to check it out to like, you know, you could sign up to be the next person to get it. And it wasn't in the library. So I had to go to a Borders. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was a good Friday night at the Borders. Yeah. And I had to get my mom to buy it for me. And then I just read all the books and was completely obsessed and watched all the movies at the midnight screenings. You know, of all the times we've actually talked about the films, I don't think I realized you read the books as well. Several times, yes. Wow. Why? Like, what What drew you to the books? I was such a contrarian as a teenager and, you know, not unlike Bella Swan, but I was just like, I like to actually read and I like art. And I, have you heard of the Smiths? You know, like, <laughs> I was very much that kid. And I think Twilight scratched an itch for me where I could still feel <laughs> superior to my friends because I was reading a book, but it was absolute just like fodder, just, yeah. just, it wasn't even like highbrow. It was such dog shit. <laughs> but I felt so cool going to Hot Topic and buying the t-shirts and no one understanding me. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like very edgy for being so mainstream. And none of the people in the wave of popularity realized that they're just part of a machine of like consumerism of just liking this dumb like YA novel just like everybody else. Maybe this will do something for you but I Holy brought the book shit. my personal copy with me today if you want to just like have it in your hands and just feel like queen of the world again. I think Lizzie actually needs to put a picture of this in the show notes. I, I It's hard to hold. It's just covered in post-it notes. Listen to this. That's just the post-it notes. I went through three pads of post-it notes making notes in this book. And can I explain to you what the post-it notes mean? Yes, please. So I have probably like 200 pieces of post-it notes sticking out of this book. <laughs> and y'all know I have to read a book if I'm going to be doing the film adaptation. Mm -hmm. This book is like 555 pages long. I only got about halfway through, but I decided to red flag the book, which I've never <laughs> read a book with that lens on before. <laughs> so all the post-it notes along the top are for Edward. Oh, no. All the post-it notes along the bottom <laughs> are for Bella Swan. It's almost every page. is a red flag for one of the two of them. For if not both. saying, doing, oh, yeah, there's a couple pages where there's a flag for both. <laughs> and you know what's funny is, like, I never caught any of this shit as a kid. I was 100% in because I was like you. Girl, I read these goddamn books, <laughs> and I went to every goddamn movie premiere, like, opening night. I remember specifically, I had a friend. Her name was—well, I'm not going to say her name. Oh, was it your friend that introduced you to Everything Cool? She was one of my friends that introduced me to Everything Cool. She's the one that made me watch The Blair Witch Project for the first time. We love She's her. the one that introduced me to Scary Movie, which at the time I thought was Scream. <laughs> Turns out it's not. It's a separate movie. But she introduced me to Twilight, and somehow my mom— got around me reading this because my mom wouldn't let me read Harry Potter. She didn't let me watch Practical Magic or Matilda. But this, <laughs> Twilight, passed the censorship. It's like when you found a uh, website in your computer lab that wasn't blocked by the whatever, <laughs> it was like mathgames.com or whatever. <laughs> We're all playing all those games during math lab until they could block it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, somehow this slipped through her notice. And I remember my friend and I would read the book together, kind of like a little mini book club. And we would pass notes back and forth during class, just like talking about how much we related <laughs> to Edward and Bella and their struggles and their emo-ness. And, you know, for some reason, that was just such a key part of, of my life growing up. So I want to talk a little bit about the book and the writer. Um, so the book was written in 2005 Wow! by Stephanie Meyer. She was my age, the age I am currently, when she wrote this book. That's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> 
<laughs> Not for you, but for her. It's like a third grade reading level. At her big age. At her big age. And, you know, I, I'm all about a woman being a millionaire. This is that story. This is what happened to this person and her book, Twilight. Like, it has never happened again. It will probably never happen again. So she had a dream where she imagined, like, this scenario in her dream that, like, a vampire came to a high school girl and they, like, kind of fell in love. And she woke up and was like, I got to write a book. I'm a housewife, but I got to write a book. She spent three months getting the first draft of the novel out. After that, she shopped around for like a week for an agent, got one. After that, she entered into a bidding war with eight different publishers, ended up getting a three-book deal for $750,000, which is the most amount of money that publisher had ever given a first-time author. And the book was out within the year. I hate to even say this woman's name in relation to what we're talking about right now because it seems kind of like an insult, but what in the Anne Rice? What in the Anne Rice? For those who haven't listened to our interview with a vampire episode, Anne Rice felt compelled to write interview with a vampire before the film, excuse me, before the book was completed. She secured the film contract or something, right? Mm-hmm. 700 and how much? She was offered $750,000 for a three-book deal. In 2006, that's before the stock market crashed. <laughs> People were just giving away money. It was originally titled Forks, but the publisher <laughs> demanded that she change it. Can you imagine this book being called Forks? It's like, okay, what are we eating with? No, it's. I mean, it's stupid just... If you understand what Forks means, it's already stupid. But if you <laughs> haven't read the book and a book is called Forks... <laughs> <laughs> they were right. They were right for that. Forks. I'm gonna fucking die. But this book and the subsequent novels have become some of the highest selling books of the last 15 years. Like millions and millions of copies, 37 different languages. It took the world by storm. You know, I made a comment earlier that it's kind of embarrassing that she wrote this book at her big age. And I don't mean embarrassing like what she accomplished wasn't something commendable because get your bag, sis. Vampires, get your money. That's all incredible. I guess what I mean is something I mentioned before we started rolling that I think Stephanie Meyer had a great idea. Yes. I just don't know if she is the best writer. There are so many holes. (laughs) There are so many holes. And the first book, I think, can stand on its own two feet, but everything else can't. Oh, it starts crumbling pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. One of the best questions I've ever heard and that has circulated in my mind for years. Even I remember having this question in my mind whenever I was reading the Twilight series in like what ninth grade or whatever. But like Bella menstruates. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what happens when once a month she just starts bleeding? Because she can't even have a paper cut around this guy. She can't even stand in front of a fan around <laughs> this guy. <laughs> And you know what's funny is, like, there are websites that address all of these plot holes. They will patch that shit up with gum and peanut butter Mm -hmm. all day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that never stopped this film from becoming just so relatable, I guess, to kids at that age. Like, middle school girls were just wild for this shit. I mean, like I said, red flagging this book was so eye-opening to me because not a single goddamn one of these... Episodes of stalking or gaslighting (laughs) or just straight up lying or murder ever ticked me as like a red flag against Edward Cullen. I was Team Edward 410%. I also want to commend Stephanie Meyer 
because she lays the rules out very quickly, very distinctly, and she sticks to them. And sometimes she makes up other rules that don't make sense, and she sticks to those too. But she doesn't break the rules that she sets in this film, and it's very clear. Yeah. I mean, in this book, I should say. Uh, I've said time and time again in all in our interview with the vampire episode and in our The Hunger episode, other films about vampires, that like for me, one of the most fun parts about a vampire movie is the rule setting. Like mm-hmm. what what are the parameters for these vampires? How do they eat? What do they eat? What's their sleeping pattern like? Why don't they go out in the sun? What's their day to day? And she does in this book, like the most interesting part of the story and most of what the film will be covering today is like the first half of the movie and the first half of the book. And that's when Bella is basically gleaning all this information about what it means to be a vampire in the mm-hmm. world today. And I do think that that is very interesting. And also it scratches this itch that I love when we take monster movies into present day, especially when it's distilled for a younger audience, like putting things in a teenager's perspective and explaining it very clearly has such an appeal for kids that otherwise are getting their vampire stuff from interview with a vampire where they're on plantations wearing ruffly skirts and like this feels very present. Yeah, exactly. It was doing what Buffy was doing. It was scratching mm-hmm. a similar itch, but Buffy did treat its audience, I think, a little bit older than Twilight treats its audience. So there, there's almost no correlation to pull between those two works. But I do appreciate the modernization of like these ancient creatures. Also, there's not a lot of subtext in this book. Nope. Like, it's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the influences that kind of just went over my head when I was 13 reading this book, most obviously, if you look at the cover of the book, Sam, could you kind of describe it for me? Yeah, if you've been living under a rock, the cover of Twilight, it's black and white photography and it's a woman's hands and in her hands is the only uh, bit of color in the picture and she's holding an apple. An apple. So to me, this is clearly a religious reference. This is like the forbidden fruit. Original sin. Original sin, the knowledge of good and evil, and even the book, which for some reason, I guess I grew up Christian, so this was never like pegged me as weird, but the the like inscription in the book... The very first page of the novel is a quote from Genesis talking about the knowledge of good and evil. Um, And then doing some research into the story and Stephanie Meyer, I realized she is like very devoutly Mormon. Mm. She went to Brigham Young University. She says that like her religion is a big part of her as a writer, but she doesn't intentionally infuse any of her religious morals into her books. But I think if you kind of zoom out, and for me, growing up super religious, not Mormon, but Christian, I can definitely see the appeal that uh, it's what allowed this book to get under the radar of all the like good A-plus Christian moms like mine and Mm -hmm. to let me read it. Because Edward refuses to have sex with Bella or even change her into a vampire until they're married. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of like this fetishizing of abstinence, this like— This purity, exactly. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people see this as like a conversion story. So, and even people have gone so far as to draw a line between the idea that the Cullens are like the good converted vampires and that they strive to be good monsters with morals while Bella is being like converted to their faith. Like people try to zoom out and make this huge, big, huge, big metaphor about religion. Stephanie Meyer's like, no, y'all, I just want to write about these horny <laughs> vampires. But regardless, saving sex until marriage, traditional gender roles are strictly enforced. This was A-plus approved by Christian parents. Yeah, wow. Oh, my God. You're so right. Oh my we were like children being allowed to read this novel that was 
So horny. So horny. Bella is so horny for Edward. He could like break through a brick wall how horny he is for her. But because that they have this like pseudo abstinence in play, it's fine. Yeah, but they end up just getting married at like fresh out of high school anyway, which is another thing that happens in a lot of super Christian communities. It's Mm -hmm. like, all right, well, I want to have sex. I have to be married to have sex. Let's get married at 18 and do it. And Mm -hmm. so that, you know, also kind of lends to that, the modern religious lifestyle. So I thought that was really interesting. I was so inundated with Christianity as a child. None of that. I just thought this was normal. I was like, yeah, all those things are normal. Waiting for sex till marriage is normal. Yes, that's Mm -hmm. (laughs) what we do. But any other YA fantasy novel was not having any of that. Yeah. Other YAs at the time were, I think, intentionally playing down the romantic elements so that it wouldn't become a question. I'm thinking of like Hunger Games. Yeah. At the time, we're like, divergent. Divergent. They're like interested in the other men that are around them, but they're not like physically compelled enough to have to make a choice whether to have sex with them or not. Right. Yeah. The sexual explicitness of those series are non existent, whereas this one is like barely concealed between the surface. Yeah. The romance is central. It's not like they're fighting for their lives amongst other teenagers in some sort of like circular maze or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So Stephanie Meyer had this huge hit on her hands. And before, the book was even like a finished manuscript. Uh, it was in the hands of MTV Films to be adapted. MTV had the rights for the film for about three years, and they actually had a completed script of, of the book. Here's a short synopsis of what that script would have been like. Um, this script involved the character of Bella Swan as a long-distance runner who curses, <laughs> who uses curse words, uses shotguns against vampires who killed her father, is turned into a vampire and then rides jet skis while being chased by the FBI. (laughs) (laughs) So nothing like the book. Nothing like the book. They said vampires? Check. They said vampires, nothing else. This is a movie for boys. They intentionally (laughs) wrote Twilight in such a way that it would appeal to a male audience. So this is just like like Laura Croft, but with vampires. (sighs) 100%. That is so stupid. Um, Stephanie Meyer was like, yeah, that shit was shit. The script never got greenlit. No, duh. Um, (laughs) So when the rights expired, Summit eventually did pick it up, brought on director Catherine Hardwick, and they were in production within a couple months. Catherine Hardwick. That sounds so familiar. Catherine Hardwick is kind of low-key a bad bitch. So she's the director of this film. She directed 13 mm-hmm. with Nikki Reed, um, Lords of Dogtown, which is like one of my favorite films of all time. We have a soft spot for that film. Nikki Reed, obviously, not so obviously, but plays Rosalie. In yes. case you haven't seen yes. 13. Yes, Nikki Reed plays Rosalie. We need to cover 13, by the way. It's definitely canon. Yeah. But Twilight was Catherine Hardwick's most commercially successful film. Um, And then writer Melissa Rosenberg was brought on to write all of the Twilight scripts. Uh, You will know her from her work in Step Up. What? (laughs) Yes. She wrote Step Up. She was a writer for Dexter and the creator of Jessica Jones. Um, I only bring this up because Step Up is so also fucking part of my personality in this time frame. Um, But I read an article from Melissa Rosenberg, and she said that she pulled from the short story of Brokeback Mountain as a major influence for her adaptation. Lizzie, I doubted the subtext that you were going to pull from this. I'm so, I'm so ashamed of myself for doubting you. Oh, that's like pretty much the only thing. (laughs) She's like, oh yeah, I thought Brokeback Mountain was a beautiful short story and I wanted to see how it was adapted. 
But yeah, the, she did pull like the idea of like forbidden love, hidden desires, keeping secrets, and like the sexiness of secrets. And she put that from... tent scene in Eclipse. She put <gasps> that in her back pocket. Scene in Eclipse. <laughs> Holy shit. Yes. I never, yes, that's so it. <sighs> Yeah, so the script is what it is. If anything, <laughs> she did a good job condensing a fucking six-inch book into a two-hour movie. Um, so now that it, the film's in Catherine Hardwick's hands and there's no FBI jet ski <laughs> chases involved, let's watch the trailer of how Twilight actually ended up being. Uh, yeah. I know what you are. Your skin is pale white and ice cold. You don't go out into the sunlight. Say it out loud. Say it. Vampire. Are you afraid? No. This isn't real. This kind of stuff just doesn't exist. Doesn't my world. I just, I feel like I'm in a hot tub. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. <laughs> we're gonna, well, like, we're gonna wax poetic about this. Welcome to the inner chambers of my mind. You are invited to open the door into the vast <laughs> chasm. That is Lizzie and Sam's psyche. It's like if my brain was a house, there's always some addict light on that's just mulling this shit over in my brain. That's like, look, Bella, a worm. <laughs> Bella, look, a worm. Where the hell you been, Loka? Like, <laughs> I'm like having so much fun. <laughs> okay. Uh, this movie has a plot. It also has a killer soundtrack. Can we talk about... The absolute needlessness of how many bangers are on this fucking soundtrack. Bang. They will get us with a movie that is not that good, like Practical Magic, but they will fucking hook us with that fucking soundtrack. Into your veins. Stick it. Same. You could tell this was at the time. There was like a really peak 20 years or so in cinema history where soundtracks could actually hit like platinum level. Yes. Like I bought this fucking soundtrack. Mm -hmm. You think I didn't? Previous to this, the soundtrack I bought was Juno. Mm. 10 out of 10, no skips. Juno soundtrack, fantastic. I would say this is basically a no skip soundtrack, starting with the very first song right off the bat. When the phone bush turns white, that's when I'll come home. At the opening of the film, you meet Phoenix, Arizona girl. Bella Swan. Can't you tell? She's from Phoenix. She's holding a cactus. Her baby little cactus. <laughs> She's leaving her mom's house to move to Forks, Washington, a small town she hates to live with her dad, Charlie. What a loaded sentence. Okay, let's break it down. Arizona girl. She's pale as a sheet. She says she loves the sun. This bitch don't spend any time outside. She's paler than Nicole Kidman. Her interests, she doesn't hike. She doesn't do sports. She just reads. She could do that anywhere. I think that this film was allowed to have two filters. <laughs> and Forks was the cold, rainy one. So they're like, if we can afford another, it better be really hot and orange. And orange. There's orange and there's blue. Yes. She's going to live with her dad, Charlie, played by Billy Burke. I didn't really have any other time to say this, but I think the Charlie character is like so fucking good. This actor knows he's one of the few actors i think who like actually read the script and like looked ahead into the future and was like okay i know we're buckling in and we're getting into something gnarly here and he's playing this so funny yes every line is a joke incredibly clued into the tone more so than pattinson or stewart i think that he saw this as a marathon and not a sprint which nobody else in this cast 
I, it feels like imagine there would ever be another one of these movies. Quick question about the casting. Did they all know that this was going to be like a five movie franchise or what's the vibe? Uh, if you looked at all the actor stories, you'll notice one thing in common. Never in their wildest dreams would they have imagined that this movie would actually be something that people would want to watch and that there there would be more of them. Oh, my God. Particularly Robert Pattinson, which I think a little later we can get into, like, kind of the cast backstory, but particularly Robert Pattinson <laughs> had no fucking clue. So maybe Billy Burke saw the writing on the wall and was like, great, the dad character, that's safe. I'll make a bajillion dollars doing that, keeping my dignity intact. And he does a really great job with it. But yeah, I don't think any of these, none of these actors, they were all blindsided by the fandom and the celebrity that came with this film. And when the first film was in production, was was the following book published at that time? So was New Moon out by the time they did Twilight? Or did they think it was just a one-off? So by the time Twilight film came out, up to the third book, Eclipse, were already released. Oh, wow. And Stephanie Meyer was actually actively writing the fourth book, Breaking Dawn, at that time. So Twilight, the book, there's only three years between the release of the first book and the release of this film. But in that time, like, this is a huge, huge fandom that already been built. So I guess if you're not a teenage girl you're not realizing what you're getting yourself into as an actor. A lot of these actors are, most of them are coming off of not too much success. A lot of them are coming from other TV movies. Kristen Stewart is the biggest actor at this time. She had had about eight years of films that had gotten some acclaim, like Panic Room Mm -hmm. and um, Catch That Kid. Mm -hmm. But for all of these actors, this was the one film that like skyrocketed them. So they just had no clue. Wow, that is incredible. They all look visibly in pain in the later installments, so. (laughs) This was not fun for anyone by the end, (laughs) and we'll talk more about that. So Bella gets to her dad Charlie's house. He buys her this, like, big gargantuan truck that I actually love. Love it. I don't know if you remember this part, but, like, five minutes in, whenever she realizes Charlie is giving this truck— she has a way of talking about this truck, like the biggest dyke I've ever seen. She like kind of does this like hang tin motion with her hands and is like, oh my God, it's perfect. <laughs> and I'm like, bitch, straighten it up, Kristen. Catherine Hardwick was like, um, can you do that as like a girl who doesn't like want to drive a truck? And Kristen Stewart's like, no. I can't. <laughs> Kristen Stewart, one of the trucks they had is like, a car extra in one of the scenes she ended up buying and driving for years. Are you kidding me? (laughs) I do want to talk about Charlie just again for like a quick second because he's like getting her settled into the room and he's like, the lady at the store picked out the comforter or whatever. It's like, you like purple. purple. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, yeah, purple's cool. (laughs) And she, the narrative voice of Bella says like, one thing about Charlie is he doesn't linger. I love that in this fictitious novel, the perfect father for a young teenage girl is a father who goes, all right, I'll leave you to it. By the way, you look nice. Says nothing else. Nothing else. (laughs) No. Oh, my God. And this poor man within. So reading the book, most of the first half of Bella's red flags are how she talks about her dad. Like within 12 pages, she has ripped this man to shreds saying like, he doesn't get me. I make him uncomfortable. He doesn't know how to be around girls. He's a loser, blah, blah, blah. 
And then Edward walks up and is like, I want to fucking kill you. And she's like, no red flags there. <laughs> totally perfect man. Like, she rips her poor dad to shreds. And I guess that's really relatably a teenage thing, you know? Yeah. Like, our dads did not get us. Yeah. We didn't get them either. But he's so harmless as far as fictitious dads go. He's like, anyways, see you later. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you. I'll buy you a cobbler later. It's like, you still like uh, ketchup, right? <laughs> <laughs> so harmless. Love that guy. Um. All right, so Bella heads off in her big decky truck on her first day to school where, I'm so sorry, she's wearing a green bowling shirt to her first day of school. Just, like, try to dress her like a heterosexual. Just try. And maybe this is why I was so enamored with this series as a kid because, like, I was a contrarian. Bella is such a contrarian. Yes. Looking back and, and trying to read the books because I tried to read, like, the gender-swapped book, you know, and... It's so infuriating how far she will go to differentiate herself from her peers to the point that I'm like, do you even like people? Like, it seems like you hate everything. She is so rude to them. She doesn't want to be talked to by anyone. Mm -hmm. She also has no interests of her own. Mm -hmm. Like, she is good at school, I guess. You see her read books sometimes and, like, her headphones are always in, but she all her clothes are so plain. Her room just has stuff that was there from when she was a kid. She never bothers to, like, revamp it. Like, she just honestly seems so fucking boring. She just, I think, dislikes things for the sake of disliking them. I think in the book, isn't she reading, like, Jane Eyre? She reads Jane Austen. Jane Austen. And, like, Wuthering Heights mm -hmm. and Tennyson. Like, she's, oh, I already read those books. I'll just keep rereading Jane Austen over right. and over and, like, look down on my friends who, I don't know. Want to go to the beach? And, like, play volleyball and, like, go shopping, like, normal stuff. Also, Steve, Stephanie Meyer cites Shakespeare and Jane Austen as some of her inspirations while writing Twilight. And I'm like, in that they, too, put pen to paper physically, <laughs> but in no other way structurally or narratively does this reflect any of their work. Quick aside, Lizzie, you can cut this. There's some lesbian that will understand this reference, but in the final season of The L Word, Alice is really upset with Jenny for writing her book about all of her friends' likeness and, like, barely changing their names. <laughs> and Alice is like, you couldn't just, like, be a writer and come up with something original. And she was like, yeah, let me just go tell Monet that he shouldn't paint those water lilies because, you know, it's not original. He shouldn't sit around and paint the water lilies. And Alice is like, yeah, I just got a call from Monet. And he says, stop fucking comparing yourself to him. <laughs> Stephanie Meyer, take a step back. Shakespeare babes. Shakespeare and Stephanie Meyer cannot be mentioned in the same breath, and I'm so sorry. She can't even compare herself to Anne Rice. Anne Rice is like, look, y'all, these vampires. Oh, when asked if she did any any research on vampires for this novel, she said, I did about as much research as Bella did, which is a quick Google search. She said, I avoided interview with the vampire. She said that by name, like the plague, because I didn't want to know what rules I was breaking. And I said... You reinvent the wheel, baby. That's kind of slay. <laughs> That's kind of slay. She's like, I don't give a book. I decided to be as dumb as possible. She's like, God gave this to me in a vision, and therefore I will just write what I know. It sounds like I hate Stephanie Myers. I don't even know how I feel about her, honestly, but I know that I don't hate her. So <laughs> You called her Stephanie Myers. Myers? Meyer. Oh, because I, I hear people talk about it as in possessives. Stephanie Myers, Twilight. Oh. oh, my God. Like Bram Stoker's Dracula? Yeah. I'm so sorry. Okay, let me take that again. <laughs> no, I think it's funny. You're like, I don't hate Stephanie Myers. 
<laughs> Sorry to this man. <laughs> Another thing that I know you're going to harp on that is hammered home about Bella Swan to a point that I'm like, why are we still talking about this? Is the fact that she is uncoordinated God. and clumsy and can like barely walk across a flat surface without falling. It's so exhausting just to hear Edward talk about other humans as though they're made of glass. And this bitch cannot even stand up straight. Oh, my God. They make us so stressed out for her well-being. She dies like the almost jump five off. times. Oh, my God. He has to keep saving her. It's like, bruh, final destination rules. She's time. It's time for her <laughs> to die. It's time for her to go. Yeah. She meets a bunch of the people at school who she hates, blah, blah, blah. She's very rude to them. Don't say blah, blah, blah. Anna Kendrick's in this movie. Anna Kendrick. I was live tweeting Lizzie as I was watching this for the 500th time. And one of the texts were like, I can't believe I keep forgetting Anna Kendrick's in this. And I was like, yeah, she would like to forget as well. Yeah. When she talks about this movie, it is not in a favorable light. She's like, yeah, Jessica's an idiot. <laughs> She's like literally said that in interviews. <laughs> I think Jessica's oh. fine. I think teenagers are dumb. Yeah, we were so stupid. <laughs> We just really just wanted to go to the mall and like feel superior. She wanted to pick out a prom dress. What's the What makes in her that? dumb? I think that Bella has such a negative view of her peers. You are still children. I'm sorry that you're not your thoughts aren't as sophisticated as Jane Austen's. Your kids. Yeah. You live in a town called Forks. <laughs> Population like 400. Um but at lunch she does meet people that are up to her interest standards and that is the Cullens. Let's go. So like any scene where you're meeting the vampire in the movie, you're like, how is everyone not totally aware that these are fucking vampires? Okay, first of all, they're gorgeous. They're like 15 years older than everyone else. Mm -hmm. They're pale as can – they're fucking white. So white. I don't even want to talk about the lack of diversity in this film. <gasps> I could be here forever. We will get to that when we meet Jacob and his team. These people don't eat. They don't drink. They don't go out in the sunlight. I'm just like, you guys. They're supposed to be foster siblings and they're dating each other. They're a CPS call away from blowing their entire cover. Oh, for sure. Quick thing. Yes. Isn't there like frames of the scene that show Emmett holding a bag of eggs? I frankly don't know. <laughs> Google that, please. Emmett Twilight eggs. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right or did I just hallucinate that? Like, that pinged about 500,000 results <laughs> on Google Images, so apparently. <laughs> Why is this man got a Ziploc bag of eggs on the table in front of him? He walks in with a bag of eggs, and it's next to him on the table. He doesn't eat food. <laughs> <laughs> He's, like, been a vampire for 100 years. He's still not quite sure how to pretend <laughs> to be a human. He's like, yeah, humans do this. My satchel of eggs, obviously, <laughs> as humans eat. <laughs> He's had a satchel of eggs on him since like 1778 or whatever. Just in case he gets pulled over at an intersection, like, <laughs> officer, my eggs. I'm a human because I have all 12 dozen eggs. <laughs> okay, I usually live for Emmett Cullen as well. Absolute himbo. Love him. Who's your favorite Cullen? No contest. Alice. Alice. Mwah. A work of Mwah. art. Mwah. Ashley Green. She's not, like, too jaded. She still has, like, an enjoyment of life. Yeah. Even though her boyfriend's, like, a fucking feral cat. <laughs> a fucking racist feral cat. Fucking confederate-ass wild animal. <laughs> <laughs> Which we don't touch on in this film. So. No, thank God. We can ignore that for now. 
But you pointed out something to me. All of the Cullens are wearing this like crest, like mm-hmm. this big silver emblem. Mm-hmm. Um, this was not in the book. No, because I only caught it on this last rewatch. And then I was like, what the fuck is this? So I used to have one of those crests. I had it on a little necklace. And whenever you pointed it out, it all like came back to me in a vision like that's so raven. I was like, oh my God, where's my crest? Is this one of those necklaces that you wore? Yes. Didn't you tell me that you wore a necklace? On the other side was Edward's face. (laughs) This is worse than carrying a bag of eggs. (laughs) This is my bag of eggs. I'm just obsessed. Oh, yeah, the Collins. Yeah, anytime it's sunny, they just, like, don't come to school. It's fine. Um, Wait, are we skipping the scene where he smells her like she's rancid? Ah, yes. Edward and Bella's meet cute. Sam, can you describe what happens to me in this scene? Happens to you? (laughs) (laughs) I think you might be better equipped. (laughs) (laughs) It's a Freudian slip. Nothing more. Nothing less. I think we've gone, we've crossed over to Fifty Shades. (laughs) All right. You remember this scene, listener. You've probably seen it 10,000 times. Bella walks in in a bowling shirt. A fan (laughs) blows her scent towards Edward, and he grabs his face like it's about to run away from him because she smells so terrible. Well, I don't know if... I should keep this on air, but Lee like was like live texting the group when he was watching <laughs> yeah. part of the film, and he was like, "Did he just come in his bed?" <laughs> yeah. That's what it looks like, hundred percent. He's like, "Oh!" He grabs the table like something's happening to his body. Yeah. He looks like he smells a big old dookie. What I really like about this scene, and and you're going to continue to discuss it, so this might be me jumping ahead a little bit, but I've read the gender swap version of Twilight, so embarrassing, and I've read. Midnight Sun from Edward's perspective. And in this scene, he is so overcome by like how strongly that her blood is like enticing to him that he's actually in this moment doing the math about how quickly he can kill every single person in this room and then run away (laughs) (laughs) before anyone makes a sound. And he could get away with it. Mm -hmm. I've never wanted another human's blood so much. Okay, if that's the case, leave. pretend to go to the bathroom also he says later like in the book at least like vampires don't need to inhale and exhale it's just something they do to appear human just stop breathing you don't have to cover your nose you have like supernatural anti-smell they're like obsessed with breathing half of this movie is them all breathing and bella like she's some sort of like aromatic (laughs) they're like fresh turkey (laughs) so this scene when you have to make choices as a director, you know, this was a choice because she herself turns to the side and sniffs her own hair to see if she perhaps does, in fact, stink. I can't even fault Catherine Hardwick because this part of the book is actually so ridiculous. Yeah. She actually does smell her own hair and is like, oh, yum, strawberry. This is like the modest, the most modest way to play this scene. It's not even ridiculous. This is just the book. Yes. On paper, on, on screen. Yes. So Edward disappears from school for a few days. He's got to get his shorts sorted. And we have another needle drop because I can't skip this long.
feels all ha 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 ha. Are you emo or is that just seasonal affective disorder? <laughs> she yes. came from Phoenix. Like she's probably feeling sad for the first time in her entire life. Oh yeah, she's crying tears for the first time. She's like, what are these wet things? <laughs> Why can't I ever seem optimistic about the future? <laughs> so after a few days of showing up to biology when Edward not there, she shows up and sees him. And he's got a little microscope. They're about to do a science experiment. Do you remember how he greets her in this scene? Hello. Hello. I'm Edward Cullen. <laughs> Listeners, you might not know this, but my like response to anything happening, you know how some people go, what? Or like, huh? I go, hello. Hello? <laughs> like if like if I hear a creaky noise on the other side of the house, I'm like, hello? Hello? If, like, my dogs start, like, farting or something, I'm like, hello? I just, like, need to know if someone's with me. <laughs> you with me? Yeah. He's like, hello? Hello? <laughs> I don't know why, but that just, like, sent me. Nasferatu. <laughs> and when he comes back to science class, they have their first official conversation. <laughs> it's so awkward. It's so awkward. And the thing that, like, I pull away from this conversation is that Edward is, like, so taken with Bella. Like, he just can't quite understand her. You're so hard for me to read. And what we know is that Edward can read people's minds, everyone mm -hmm. but Bella's. Mm -hmm. And you pointed – you made this point to me. Like, oh, she seems so interesting. And he, like, imagines her as this, like, wholly different creature than all the other high school girls around him. But she is just as shallow and boring and insecure as everyone else. But he just can't hear it. So he's like taken by her. Exactly. I think she's the only person that he could actually project onto because he can't confirm their like individuality. Like he can't confirm that she's actually an individual having her own thoughts. So I think that gives him like a green field for him to just assume so many things about her. But I'm not like posturizing out of nothing. Midnight Sun, I can't believe I'm talking about it so much, but. Dude, we were obsessed with Midnight Sun because it leaked onto the internet before mm -hmm. she officially published it years and years later. It leaked on Tumblr. That's where I got the manuscript for Midnight Sun. And Edward Cullen specifically talks about hearing everyone's, especially like the teenage girls in his high school's like inner monologues whenever he walks by like, oh, he's so cute. Did I do something wrong? Why is he ignoring me? Bitch, that's literally Bella's entire thought process yeah. for the first half of this book. She is constantly thinking about him. Even before they speak, her thoughts are absolutely wrapped around him. Mm -hmm. It's so, it's so stupid. And, and that's what we wanted as high school girls, though. Like you said, we wanted to be contrarian. We wanted to feel like not like the other girls. Special. Special, different, noticeable, worth talking to. So that's part of what itched this book fucking scratched so hard for the kids of our generation reading this for the first time. Yeah, the idea that you can be special without being extraordinary. Mm -hmm. She was just as normal as everyone else, but somebody saw her and decided she was special. It kind of reminds me of um, when Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who's the writer-creator of Fleabag, went on SNL. She has a line in her SNL monologue that's like talking about the priest character played by uh, Andrew Scott. She said, me and Andrew were talking, you know, trying to figure out, like, what made women so horny for this hot priest character. And we realized he was doing this one thing, listening. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, this guy is so fucking interested in every word that comes out of Bella's mouth about every minute thing 
about her experience. And there's a line in the book that like it struck like that inner child in me that I was revisiting while rereading Twilight. And it was a point where she's like, Edward has been like grilling her with conversation with uh, questions all day early into the relationship. And she said, at some point, I just forgot to be self-conscious about you know, one-siding the conversation. And I was like, I think a lot of girls were really self-conscious at that age. And even now that like we take up too much space. Mm -hmm. So for all of Edward's red flags, that was like one moment in the book that I was like, yeah, we all wanted at that age. And even now to just be fucking listened to, to be thought that we're interesting. None of this is in my notes. I'm just like telling you all this. But No, that's so true. I'm a lesbian. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But (laughs) a, a note that I hear a lot from my like, straight girlfriends is that men just never seem to care that the girls are doing the work in facilitating the conversation and moving it forward. And guys don't actually, if they're asking you a question, they're going, oh, and how about you? You've asked the first question. Okay, now it's your turn. They're they're volleying things, but they're not actually genuinely curious about your experience. So it's refreshing, especially as a teenager. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen for a long time. (laughs) And people actually give a shit about what a young woman thinks about. Cares well, about. A little does she know she's talking to an elder, not a teenager. He's mature for his age. But still a virgin. <laughs> God bless him. Is he a virgin? Edward Cullen is a virgin. <gasps> you never got Edward Cullen has been a virgin for like 107 years. That's why he makes her wait to have sex till they're married. What? what? So it's it's why he's like this really insane combination of like otherworldly and wise but also like stunted emotionally he's been fuck he hasn't he's been masturbating for 107 years that's the most unrealistic part of this vampire story (laughs) is that he's been alive for close to 200 years and has never had sex Mm -hmm. what is holding you back he already believes he doesn't have a soul oh insecurity oh my god oh my god like most of us Hold on to our virginity till about 17. Can you imagine doing that 10 times? I am flabbergasted. I'm glad I could clue you in on that. So after school, we get the infamous truck scene Mm, mm -hmm. in which Edward seeing a van careen towards Bella's body across the parking lot Mm -hmm. saves her. And it's the first time she really gets, like, a concrete idea that, like, okay, something's up with that Edward guy. (laughs) He's not like the other boys. Yeah. Um, So she confronts Edward afterwards to get him to tell her the truth. And he just, like, gaslights the shit out of her. Well, no one's going to believe you. Yeah, no one's going to. What are you? uh, I was standing right next to you. You, like, hit your head so hard, Bella. You're not going to let this go, are you? She's like, I just want to know the truth. You fucking did a Superman thing in front of me. Just make me understand that I'm not insane. And from this point on, Bella is obsessed with finding out Edward Cullen's secret. There's a moment at school where he like approaches her at the salad bar during lunch. <gasps> oh my God. I had such a question about this. Yes. What? Uh, uh, tell me about this scene. So Bella is making herself like a salad at the salad bar, as Lizzie was saying, and her apple falls off the counter and it like falls onto Edward's foot and he like kicks it up into his hands. And when he catches it, it looks just like the cover of the book. And the way that we see it, it seems like something's in reverse. Did he drop it onto his foot, kick it up onto the counter? Like, did they marry two shots together? 
how did that work? Do you want to see how they did it? Yes. So in this scene, um, it's a little BTS from the DVD of Twilight where Catherine Hardwick, the director, is talking about how they practically pulled off this effect. I was trying to think of how to make that scene in the cafeteria more interesting and come alive. And so I thought, uh, okay, a salad bar is kind of cool. You can be on different sides. There's just beautiful colors and everything. That's kind of how I got the idea. And then I thought, wow, maybe she could have an apple. Oh my God, let's just go for it. And let's just do the book cover. And maybe it's cool or not cool, but I want to at least try it. Edible art. <laughs> try it one more time. Edible art. <laughs> Lizzie. Is that like scratching your little like brain itch? Uh, this is so satisfying. I could like rest easy tonight. This has been plaguing me since I saw the film. That is incredible. So it's like Lizzie's saying, it's a practical effect. I assume that they did the apple falling and then the apple coming up like in reverse some way and like married the clips together. But what they actually did is Bella drops the apple onto the ground and the apple is affixed with a string that pops it up into Edward's hands. Yeah. Wow. Apparently they did like 13 takes on the last take when they were about to give up. He nailed it. Oh, God. So good. It really doesn't need to be in the movie. I love it. You know, it's a little meta moment, about as meta as this film's going to get. So in her quest for the truth, Bella is led to hang out at the beach in La Push. It's La Push, baby. It's La Push. <laughs> and there she meets up again with Jacob, played by Taylor Lautner. Shark Boy. Shark Boy. <laughs> of Shark Boy and Lava Girl fame. Do you know he's married to a girl named Taylor? And they're both Taylor Lautner. Taylor The Lautner, amount of Taylor shit Lautner. I know about everyone who's dated Taylor Swift simply because I have a Twitter account. Oh, yeah. He dated, oh, he dated Taylor Swift, didn't he? Yeah. She would have also been Taylor Lautner. Oh, I'm my exhausted. God. How many Taylors? I just don't know. I couldn't date someone named Lizzie. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't date anyone named Sam. Could not do it. I get freaked out when a character in a movie is named Sam. I cannot date anyone named Sam. Uh, I have such an issue with Stephanie Meyer and her lack of diversity in these books and in the films. And I think that Catherine Hardwick did what she could to at least make some of them people of color when they weren't explicitly written as such. But the fact that the characters that were explicitly written as non-white are later just devolved into literal dogs. I know. Oh, my God. God. What the fuck? It's like actually so fucked up. And I actually learned a lot about this side of the story of um, what Stephanie Meyer took whenever she was doing her writing for Jacob Black and the Quileute people. Because one thing I knew in the back of my head as a kid, but never again registered how fucked up it is, is that Quileute people are that's like a real tribe that lives in this area that has been there for thousands of years. Wow. And the scary story that Jacob tells her about how the Quileutes in Twilight are descended from wolves and they discovered, like, these cold ones who drank blood on their lands and made a treaty with them. In doing research for the book, um, Stephanie Meyer found this creation story. It's a Quileute creation story that tells of how the Transformer, Kwati, after finding no people at the mouth of the river, where he knew his people would live, decided to turn two wolves into humans. So she kind of took that and bastardized it and turned this whole plot line of Jacob Black and um, the people in his pack, I guess, uh, from that. And it's 
I found this really cool website that was made with the Quileute people in collaboration with the Burke Museum in Seattle, which is like just a um, nature and culture museum that basically unravels all the bullshit of the books involving Jacob Black and the Quileute tribes. On the website, they have like some reactions from like actual Quileute people. And it's definitely mixed because there was a spike in tourism on the reservation once the films were being released. But when you compare that to the absolute billion dollar franchise like none of that money has actually made its way back after um these stories were stolen for twilight and it's really exploitative it's really inaccurate i think it's just insanely irresponsible to geez it's like hard for me to put into words because it makes me so incredibly angry it's just like textbook appropriation. She, Stephanie Meyer, as you said, did not pick up interview with a vampire mm-hmm. because she didn't want to know which rules she was breaking. But she did enough research, just enough to find out about this tale that is like sacred to what it seems like a, a whole bunch of indigenous people to slap that as some gimmick on a story about vampires versus werewolves. And painting the werewolves is like kind of bad and rough and cruel. It's just as beasts. And and people of color, especially indigenous people, have had to combat that stigma endlessly for her to just perpetuate it. And she does not do any service to these people. She does not use that story to humanize them or to elevate them. Nothing of the sort. She continues throughout the franchise to make them seem lesser than vampires or even humans. They're like reduced to such an aggressive form. And they're always, yeah. If we we do in fact cover the later films on this podcast, there's so many more stereotypes um, and stigmas that she perpetrates in her later works involving Jacob Black. And yeah, it's, it gets worse. This is reminding me of J.K. Rowling, like the people of color in Hogwarts are like Cho Chang. Yeah. What the fuck? If you're not going to give them the credit of of portraying them honestly, don't. Yeah. Just don't write them in. It's, yeah. it's a more egregious in my perspective. Yeah, for sure. No, it's definitely disgusting. Uh, I highly recommend checking out the website created. It's I'll link it in the show notes, but it uh, as well as like breaking down the Quileute tribal practices and customs and stories. It also is just a really great breakdown and critique of the whole franchise from like a feminist perspective, from a cultural perspective. I enjoyed every single thing I read about the franchise on this website. It's really well done and I learned a lot. So the fact that they had to make this like FAQ to say like, we're not dogs. It's a whole website with like multiple articles ridiculous and stephanie meyer because like she continues in the rest of the books which we're not going to touch on to make them seem like smelly disgusting like subhuman creatures but at the end of the day they're still better than vampires and i stand by that no i'm curious to red flag new moon and see if jacob black says anything everything edward cullen says in the twilight book is a fucking red flag (laughs) i literally cannot stress that enough i literally cannot stress that enough everything this man does is problematic. Um, so let's keep going. <laughs> You're rocking and rolling. <laughs> rock and roll. So Bella Swan decides to tag along on a shopping trip with some of her human friends to Port Angeles. She goes to a bookstore and buys a book of Quileute legends. 
Um, shop local. Um, <laughs> so leaving the bookstore, she's end up followed by a group of men. And, you know, it's clear they're up to no good because no man in the story can be morally high ground except for Charlie. Um, <laughs> but Edward rocks up in his Volvo, commands her to get in the car and saves her for the second time in the film. And a Volvo, no less. Why do they have to say Volvo so many times? It's the in the book, too. Yeah. Oh, was it? She says Volvo like a hundred times. Why? I don't know if that, like, to her was, like, her dream car as a kid. It's like, <laughs> oh, you know he's rich. He's got a Volvo. And he's so sexy, obviously, because he pulls up in a Volvo hatchback. Yeah, hatchback. And he's ready to pull those guys' heads off. It should have been a boobaroo. Yeah, boobaroo, obviously. You're in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. So he takes her to, like, a little restaurant to get some, like, PTSD energy after. And we get a needle drop from Robert Pattinson himself. Smell thing. Literally, what is he saying? Is this the equivalent of Patrick Swayze? She's like the wind. <laughs> You're like, yup. She's no home. What is that accent? You're British, babes. Aren't <laughs> you British? Like, what is that? Oh my God. When do we get into like Robert Pattinson just like hating Twilight? Right now. So, he viscerally hates it <laughs> in this installment, even, and it's just begun. But at least it matches the character. So you can't really tell. No, you can't really tell. Robert Pattinson, you guys, has gone on record from day one, from interview one, showing his absolute disdain for the entire franchise. And like, part of me, like hearing all these interviews was like, why did he do it? Why did any of them do it? By the end, they're so miserable. Mm -hmm. So this song, Never Think, that I just played, is a song written and performed by Robert Pattinson. There's another song later in the film called Let Me Sign. You know, we all had these on our iPods <laughs> in middle school. You didn't have a song? It was not on the soundtrack. It wasn't, but I got it from LimeWire. I didn't go out of my way for that. <laughs> wow. Um, I was obsessed. But um, so in doing research on, like, why Robert Pattinson, like, decided to do this franchise at all, so obviously before this, his first really big role um, was three years prior with Cedric Diggory in the fourth Harry Potter. Harry my Potter, boy. And the, my son. <laughs> this was like a big moment for him. But after that, he didn't get another role for three years. Wow. He basically switched over to trying for music and that really got him nowhere. He said in an interview I found that like he was like living on his agent's couch, basically coasting off the money of Harry Potter. And it was coming to a very soon end when he got the audition for Twilight, which he didn't want to do, didn't think he was suited for it all, didn't like the script, didn't like any of it. Ended up getting the role because Catherine Hardwick made him and Kristen Stewart make out on her bed. I'm casting couch. They casted Couch the Meadow scene. No. Which is so weird. Like, why not a scene with dialogue? <laughs> but Kristen Stewart went to bat for him and was like, no, it's got to be Rob. Which also led me to, like, kind of thinking about Kristen Stewart. Like, she had had a pretty successful career up to this point. But like I said, it was really clear as soon as the first movie was released and all the actors started doing movie two, three, four, five, that none of them wanted to be doing it. So in my mind, I'm like, why? The contract. They, the contract. So I did a little research into what an actor's contract in this level might look like. Obviously, this is all research and speculation. I don't have access to their actual contracts. 
But like looking at other movies, I could kind of figure out like what might have got them on the hook for this. It's the best day of my life. <laughs> this is the best day. <laughs> Investigative journalism. Like look at Rob. He's <laughs> leaving on a couch. His music career is not going anywhere. He hasn't had a successful audition in three years. He's running out of money. He's 22 years old. So he gets this audition for this movie. He's like, this is a leading role in a real film. They're going to pay me. They're going to give me two million bucks. That's estimated what they received for the first film, about $2 million. What in their contract might have been present was something called a sequels option, which is just saying if there are other films, you will do the films and that the contract will be renegotiated at that point in terms of money. Mm. Again, no guarantee of his actor's contract had that option. It's very hard to get out of these options because obviously if you're building up a franchise, they want to ensure that there's going to be consistently, at least for the principal cast. Mm -hmm. At this point, though, I think Summit Entertainment knew they had something good on their hands, but this wasn't something they were putting a ton of money into. It was kind of still being treated as a one-off until they knew they could make a return on it. So, of course, they fucking did and instantly went into pre-production for the second film as soon as the first one was nearing completion. So what a contract for an actor might look like at this point when they're signing for the second, third, fourth film. So to entice the actors, the financial model for the future films changes. I found an example from um, a Marvel movie. So Robert Downey Jr., who was like a medium-level star at the beginning of Iron Man, did the first Iron Man for $500,000. Great paycheck. Iron Man 2, he was offered $10 What the fuck? Iron Man 3, 50 million. So basically what you're looking at is like a giant golden egg. Exponential. Yes. So it's speculated that um, if Robert and Kristen, the two biggest stars of the franchise, were paid around $2 million for Twilight, they were each estimated to get $12 million for New Moon what and the subsequent f- films. Fuck. I'm just curious, like from a contract perspective, what the point is of a sequel option if you're still going to renegotiate the price, because why would you even need to check that box in your contract if you can in six months? Like, it still comes down to a number. Right. It's it, The sequel option is kind of more like to secure that they will be interested. Consider it. Yes. That's the thing. You can negotiate out, mm-hmm. but if they're offering you $12 million, that's why they sweeten the deal so much in the second one. Because in the hiring contract phase for films two, three, four, five. Those options are so much more strict. Like, basically, you have to be fired or dead to get out of them. (laughs) They renegotiate your contract to be a lot more strict with the second, third films because at that point, they're like, well, you can't get out. It's reminding me of Edward Norton, who did not want to play the Hulk, who turned it down, I think he says, over like 20 times. Marvel came to him 20 different times and offered him the Hulk and he said, no, no, no. And then they offered him an amount of money that he said, like, my children and my children's children and their children's children would never have to work a day in their life. Yeah. And it would take me all of 30 days of work. Exactly. You know, so at that point, Jesus Christ. You sell your soul to the devil. Mm -hmm. And Kristen Stewart talks about like her endless amounts of panic attacks and anxiety that she, that she encountered with the instant fame. She was pushed into with this film all of her relationships were like looked at with a fucking microscopic lens i remember that robert pattinson talks about being so depressed he couldn't even physically write words on paper it would just come out as gibberish jesus nicky reed talks about a breakdown all these actors they they sold out Mm -hmm. and they paid the price and maybe it was worth it only they can say 
Um, Catherine Hardwick had first right of refusal for the second film and opted not to do it. Damn. And she kind of is like, yep, I'm grateful for that. Wash my hands. She's like, I got in, did what I loved at when it was at the level of more like hands-on DIY, make it work. Like, let's do the apple trick, mm-hmm. you know, call it on the day kind of stuff that she likes. And before it became like huge studio pictures. You got to respect her for that because Twilight as a film standalone, if you haven't read the book, it makes sense. They hit every single beat. It's efficient. There's not a lot of holes you can poke with the first one. So God, it makes me sad for the rest of them, but I'm not sad for millionaires. Yeah, exactly. They're fucking millionaires. That's something I stand on. It's like they can afford the therapy to deal with the anxiety yeah. of all this. I'm so sorry, but you played a teenager that could sparkle. Like I get it. It's not fun, but it's like the you're opposite. Still a of, millionaire. It's like the opposite of signing up for student loans because like Kristen Stewart <laughs> at this time is 18 years old, making like multi million dollar decisions mm. for her future self that will last five. 10, 20 years into the future. Mm -hmm. And I I do think she and Robert Pattinson had the opportunity to like remove themselves from Twilight. When I think of them, I don't think of Twilight first anymore. They've both gone on to do enough. Yeah. Everyone else, I don't know where they are. Billy Burke playing Charlie, where you at? Where's his future role? But at the end of the day, they could have dropped off the face of the planet. As millionaires. And never worked, never lifted a finger until they died. So, so it's kind of hard. Yeah, I, I'm sorry you're depressed and you can't write a word, but I feel like that's uh, something you're going through. I feel like you can like hire people to protect you. Yeah, yeah. I've never been so sad that I couldn't write on paper and I had negative money in my bank account. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so from this point on, I want to play a little game. Uh, it's called, what's that line? So I'm going to play a clip and... You tell me what the next line is. I am so ready. It's like a version of whose line, but it's just so <laughs> stupid. So much more stupid. Okay. Where we left off, Edward and Bella, they went to an Italian restaurant to grab a bite. Mushroom ravioli. <laughs> You're right. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> um, and we get this choice line where uh, Edward is explaining what it's like to be in other people's minds. I can read every mind in this room apart from yours. Money, sex, money, sex. Cat. (laughs) Cat. Oh, you're going to be good at this. Don't fuck with me, Lizzie. I'm going to go super sane right now. Oh, so Bella gets home. She's got enough information now to do a quick Google search. You can Google it. You can Google what's wrong with my boyfriend (laughs) with choice words such as cold, strong, pale skin. She figures out that he is a... Say it out loud. Vampire. (laughs) She follows him into the forest to confront him about it. And we get one of the single most confusing but creative aspects of the vampires in the Stephanie Myers universe. And that is... Are they fucking... Sparkle. Sparkle. Why? (laughs) Why? Why not? Why? (laughs) I think if you shook me out of a coma, I'd be like, why are they sparkling? Why? Hello? (laughs) Hello. (laughs) So George Lucas's VFX company, we have to thank for the sparkly skin of Edward and his friends. (laughs) This is the skin of a killer, Bella. 
Not the skin of a killer. George Lucas, why did you play a part in this? So they have like their heart to heart where he's like, you think you could fight me off? I'm strong as fuck. I can throw a tree. I'm so fast. And she's like, I don't care. I'm not scared of you. I'm not scared of you. I trust you. He's like, I've literally killed people before. Charlie was like, you like purple, right? And she was like, fuck my dad. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I will. I've been trying to kill you for two weeks. And she's like, okay. I trust you. (laughs) And I have another, another line for you to read for me. Thank you. So the mind fell in love with the lamb. Uh, what a stupid lamb. What a masochist, sadomasochistic lion or something. <laughs> what a sick masochistic lion. Thank you. This line had me by the throat as a teenager. Is it because it was on the Hot Topic t-shirt? Yes, I had that t-shirt. <laughs> Wait, let's talk about that t-shirt. Which one did you have? <laughs> I had the one where it was Bella on Edward's chest. Yeah, like yeah. nestled nestled. Under him. Yeah, it was mostly just Edward. One. Yeah. And then I had just the Edward one as well. I didn't have that one. I should have got the Alice shirt. That's probably limited edition at this point. Oh my god, that thing's probably worth a thousand dollars. Um then she goes over to meet the Cullen family for dinner. I told them not to do this. You have this. You had a little bit of olive oil to a non-stick saute pan. Is she even Italian? Her name is Bella. <laughs> Her name is Bella. <laughs> Her name's Bella. Emmett, I'm... you beautiful egg-eating himbo. Did you think I was going to get these? Because I, I did not think you were going to get these. I did not. I was like, God, maybe these are too hard. Nope. Okay, I have, I have a treat for you. Yes. Maybe you've seen this, but after the scene... Where they're making Italian for her, Edward brings Bella up to his bedroom. Chinchilla. Hit me with it. There's a deleted scene. <laughs> literally, I can't actually believe they shot this on film, like film rolls, not like digital. This is going to live forever. Like this is in the Library of Congress. This is in the Library of Congress. I used to make these. Yeah. Rain sticks. Yeah. I had a chinchilla, and me and my mom used to make these out of the chinchilla's droppings and. Uh, you know, like like paper towel rolls. Maybe that's weird. <laughs> she improvising this or is this scripted? I fucking hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Why? 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 I am upset with the scene because she goes into Edward's room and she presses play on his little music, like his little stereo system, and it's classical music. He tells her that he was turned into a vampire in 1918. Bitch, there was music on the radio with lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> Why you listen to Debussy? Debussy. <laughs> Debussy. <laughs> you better Debussy this thing right open. Did, did Stephanie Meyer not understand, like, generational time differences? Like, She's like, what's, like, the most boring, like, common thing he can be doing. Let's listen to the number one most popular orchestral strong in the entire world. From a hundred years before he was even born. Like, this is not even the time period that he would listen to that music in. <laughs> what if it was like, dun, 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 dun. he's like, yeah, I love Usher's new album. <laughs> Don't press play unless you want to go to sleep. <laughs> it's just deep pain. <sighs> so later that night, he sneaks into her room. And we find out that he's been sneaking in through the window to watch her sleep 
for months. How often do you do that? Only for the last couple of months. And she's like, cool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Stalking. He's a stalker. I can't even begin. Like your book full of red flags doesn't even begin to break the surface of how like inappropriate and non-romantic that relationship is. They have nothing in common. Oh, at this point, they've already said, I love you. The lion fell in love with the lamb. This is their second conversation. I saw a review on Letterboxd. I was like imagining this as like the over-sexual people in my high school class. Oh, my God. And I can't unsee it. I can't unsee it. I feel so They're uncomfortable. They're the two band kids that are making out by the trombone. They're in the like, corner at every school assembly whispering into each other's ear. They have no other friends. Like licking each other's earlobes. I'm like, I'm sorry, but I don't think that you would tear that guy's head off, you know? Just because you rolled up in a Volvo, I don't think you have the tactical ability to do that. Their chemistry is so low. I'm so uncomfortable. After this, we get the baseball scene. Do you know how they achieve the effects of them being able to run really fast? Is it treadmills? It's, it's, I can't even describe. So I'm going to show you a clip. This is a BTS clip about the baseball scene. In the baseball scene, basically Edward and his family are playing baseball during a thunderstorm. The thunder covers the sound of them like hitting the ball really hard. It sounds like lightning or whatever. And they're just like, they're vampires. They run really, really, really fast. So it looks like they like zoom around this little baseball diamond. Their legs going like a million miles an hour. So this is how they shot that. This Twilight film was on a budget, which meant using as many practical effects as possible. The most impressive part of the scene is how they got the vampires moving. For the Cullens, they were attached to ropes and harnesses while running to help them achieve a smoother glide. But for villains James, Laurent, and Victoria, their actors walked through the field on a magical green carpet to make it seem as if they were floating. So for the good guys, for Edward and them running around the baseball diamond, they have them on like harnesses, like from wires, and they just kind of like fling them really quickly <laughs> zip across. Zipline them. <laughs> Zipline them while they like run their arms and legs really fast. <laughs> and then for the bad vampire's entrance, James and Victoria and them, this one's even more insane. They have like a long, what looks like a, if you covered a red carpet in like green leaves, a magic carpet is what they call it, that is being pulled by a motor across the grass. So when they're walking, on this red carp on this magic carpet it makes them look like they're going really quickly what you don't know about this scene and what you can't see is that all three of these bad vampires are supposed to be barefoot right mm -hmm. but the actors couldn't walk barefoot on this mechanism so what they did is they made like little ballet flats and painted human toes Shut and feet up. onto the ballet flats for them to wear so it looked like they were barefoot <laughs> Oh my god, that's incredible. This is my favorite scene in the entire movie. This is the, the needle, baseball scene? Needle drop of of the century. And I said that before for Scream, but technically that was in the 1990s. So this is kind of a new century. Is this super massive black hole? By Muse. Can I tell you a secret? Mm-hmm. 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 This is a safe space. No, it's not. Anyone can press play on this. <laughs> <laughs> so safe. Um, <sighs> what? Okay, here How bad could it be? <laughs> Give me a second. Okay. Say it. <laughs> Out loud. Okay. So when I was enrolled in high school, I was also technically enrolled in college. And the college had a production, a theater and musical production at this time. 
when Twilight was at the height of popularity. And it was an original work that one of the students wrote that was Romeo and Juliet, but vampires and werewolves. (gasps) And I was cast in that musical. What? And I played a werewolf cop. No! And we had a whole dance routine to a super massive black hole. No, 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 no. You've been keeping secrets from me. You've been keeping secrets from me. To be fair, you never asked if I ever performed super massive black hole in a Romeo and Juliet version of Vampires and Superwolves. There's got to be footage of this somewhere, right? Sam. No, no, Sam. no. Do you remember Sam any of the moves? deleted all the copies. I do remember some <laughs> of the moves. She burned the school to the ground. I do remember some of the moves. What are the moves? I'm not going to do that right now. You don't even like me. You don't even <laughs> love me unless you show me some of these moves. Why don't you give me like a sequel condition in my contract and we'll see if I'll do the moves for I'll you. I'll add the option. I can't believe there's still secrets between us. Okay, I'll tell you a secret. This isn't as embarrassing. But all through high school, whenever I would go get my hair cut and dyed, I would bring a picture of Bella Swan. (laughs) I would dye the top half of my hair reddish brown and the bottom half black. Black! It's funny that you and I were having parallel experiences before meeting each other so far apart. We were like on Tumblr the night Midnight Sun dropped. Like I literally stayed up all night reading those first We were probably chapters. liking the same Tumblr posts. Oh, we probably crossed Tumblr posts at some point. It's so beautiful. We're looking at the same moon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ill. All right, I have one more line read for you. Okay, let's do it. It's from the baseball scene. There's no line. This is the hardest one because there's no line preceding this. So you just have to either you know it or you don't. It was very fast. My monkey man. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I literally just showed her a one second clip of Emmett Cullen throwing a baseball. Play that shit. My monkey man. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> All right, folks, see y'all next week. Bring in the championship belt. So that's the first half of the film. The second half of the film I can explain in like two sentences. Yes. So around this time, we meet the evil vampires on their magic carpet of grass. And they're a trio who are unlike the Cullens, actual human bloodsuckers. And they've been like kind of picking off people in the town throughout the film. One of them is a tracker named James who smells Bella's humanness on the baseball field. And because she is guarded by Edward, decides to hunt her down. Mm -hmm. So Alice and Jasper take Bella to Arizona to hide out. I don't know why they go to Phoenix, Arizona, where her family has a connection to. Like, go anywhere else in the world. Yeah, she makes a huge effort to, like, make sure Charlie isn't involved. And they just take her to her, like, mom's town. Yeah. What the fuck? Anyway, um, James eventually finds her, lures her to a dance studio where they have like a massive showdown fight where Edward and the Collins show up to save Bella, but not before she, she's been bit by James and Edward has to suck out the venom in her arm in the most insane shot. So this was the first scene that they ever filmed. No way. And one thing about Robert Pattinson's performance is about a week in or two weeks into a 44-day shooting schedule... He was about to be fired because he was playing this too seriously. Whoa. So in the scene where Emmett's like, her name's Bella. (laughs) That's like a week or two in. 
Robert Pattinson says he remembers at lunch being pulled aside by his agent who like came to set for a surprise visit and the agent being like, yeah, if you don't pull a full 180 and just start doing the opposite of whatever you've been doing <laughs> and start smiling a little bit, you're going to be fired. Whoa. So that's why you can tell the tone of this scene is like so intense and serious and like more like a horror movie than the rest of the film. This is my least favorite part of the film. When she's in the ballet studio, it's just like so dry, one note. It's not something I like to revisit. It's not even particularly scary. I just don't enjoy this part of yeah. the story. Because she's separated from Edward and she's just off being a boring, oh no, I have to be saved girl again. Made of glass. It's yeah. so exhausting. She's saved so many times in this film. <laughs> But they do save her, and because Edward sucked the villain out, she does not transform into a vampire. Bummer, because she really wanted to bad. God, they should have just let it run its course. They would have saved so much time for us. Um, The final scene of the film, we get one last baller needle drop. Is it a baller needle drop? I love this song. How I found you. I found you, flightless bird. Kristen Stewart recommended this song to the production to use for the prom scene. <laughs> and that's a wrap. Jesus. Goddamn. <laughs> I don't know if I have a single more goddamn thing to say about this movie ever again. Uh, catch me for a new moon because I have a lot of opinions about that. Oh, my God. I'm throwing that one over to your court. Yeah, I'm going to do it. So reception for this film... It made a gajillion dollars. <laughs> uh, the film was made for $37 million and grossed 408 in the box office. Jeez. But with merchandising, subsequent films, Hot the franchise. Hot Topic collaborations. <laughs> Hot Topic collaborations and soundtrack sales. This franchise has pulled easily over a billion dollars in revenue and is, to this day, one of the highest grossing films directed by a woman. And you and I are responsible for half <laughs> of the profit there. So I feel like we're stakeholders. Yeah, 500 million from me, 500 million from you. Mm -hmm. You honestly got another version of Twilight just for this episode to post it note. I did. I bought the fucking book. In my defense, it was $1.16 <laughs> on thriftbooks.com. However, I did pay for it. Um, my last fun fact to give you about this film that you probably already know, but in case you don't, you literally need to know this. So fan fiction's a thing, right? Yes. Fan fiction is when a human being out in the world writes their own version or their own story using the characters from an already created piece. So there was a Twilight fan fiction uh. written that was turned into another super successful franchise and that franchise is 50 shades of gray tell the listeners we watched <sighs> 50 shades of gray to it's a joke we tried these are actually some of the worst films i've ever seen like twilight is horrible and but it's hilarious and it we has a foundation at the very least it's creative mm -hmm. 50 shades of gray is about two of the most vanilla looking ass people pretending to have crazy sex which is really just so cringy. I can't believe people went and saw this in a theater. I would literally die. They pretend it's in a kink and they just put handcuffs on each other and have missionaries. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I do not recommend these films at all, but I think that is so fucking funny. Um, so with that, we got one more job to do. 
So Sam, how does the subtextual score work? How the subtextual score works is that we rate the film on how good it is and how gay it is and get an overall score out of 10. And that is the subtextual score. All right, kick us off, Sam. How gay is this movie? One. It's a one. I can't even tell you what the one is for. I guess Kristen Kristen Stewart Stewart. is gay (laughs) as book. And I enjoyed it while being a homosexual. Sam, how good is this movie? I'm going to give it a five. I'm also going to give it a five. And don't give me any shit. Copy both don't my give scores. Me any shit. That gives us a subtextual score of three. <laughs> and also puts this film in third place on their bottom five. Right where it needs to be. Stop us. I love this movie. I hate this movie. I'm going home to watch New Moon. Okay, Bella, can you answer the question of where the hell you been? Loka? <laughs> Okay, next time it's on me to do New Moon, and then I'm going to do the finish the quote test on you. Oh my God, I'm in. I'm going to start studying as soon as I get home. (laughs) Well, thanks for listening, guys. Happy fucking Halloween. And please remember, it's a push. It's a push, push, baby. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to keep this content ad-free, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. See you next week.